Hey, it's Scott Orn of Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Ohm. Welcome to Founders Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Q Motowala from DNX Ventures. Welcome, Q. Thank you, Scott, for having me. It's uh, great to be on a Friday evening with you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. What else would you want to be doing on a Friday evening but talking to me? Yeah, not holding my beer, <laughs> but talking to you. Yes. Feel free to crack one open. Um, well, hey, man, do you mind? So you have a great background. We were just talking. Do you mind just retracing your career a little bit and, and telling everyone how you made it to DNX and, and what came before that? Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I kind of landed on this uh, dark side, not having really planned on this. Uh, I'm really an operator. Spent very early, about 11 years or so of my career came after, after I came out of school at uh, Qualcomm in, in the early 90s. And, um, uh, you know, was there doing engineering, product management, business development, deploying of uh, 3G in Japan, South Korea, et cetera. And then two startups after that. Uh, both the startups actually failed, but probably the best lessons I've learned in life. And that's when I met some of my uh, partners uh, and, and we co-founded DNX, and we had very humble beginnings. Uh, you know, when we started fundraising, that's the day Lehman collapsed, and so we oh my god, we thought to ourselves, well, that that's gonna be the worst timing that you've had in in raising a fund. Was that like literally your kickoff, or did you have like half of it raised, or was it? We like... had uh, we had some verbal commitments that basically said, you know, uh, we had people who had committed fifty million dollars up up until that point. Yeah, and then Lehman crashed. I think. We didn't realize the 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 severity or the seriousness of the situation because at that time it's still like cowboys. Oh, no, you know, I think these people are going to still fund us. Oh, absolutely not, right? And so uh, it took us three years. I, we we said, okay, well, I think we're a good team. We can either blow this up and try to find some gigs so that we could you know keep the lights on at home, or we kind of just figure out this is. In a moments of crisis is when great firms yeah. are formed, great companies are formed. And I think that's yep. a that's a great lesson for startups as well that are forming either now or, yeah. or at that time. Anyway, so we stuck it out. What did you do? Like, how did you do that? Because that's like a long time. Did you guys invest like your own money while you're doing it? Or were you doing consulting? Or we did how did some you survive? Gigs. It was absolutely hilarious, you know, what, what all things we had to do. But I think, I'll tell you what, I mean, the entrepreneurs that are farming companies today, they're doing something on the side. You know, they're not getting paid. They, they got to figure out how to 
how to take some money home. So yeah. I think, you know, it's just hats off and kudos to all of those folks. Sometimes they tap into their mortgage lines of credit and, and just get the company going or max out their credit cards. Luckily, we didn't have to do any of those, you know, crazy things. Yeah. It took us about three years to get to a very, very modest $20 million. Uh, that was in 2011. And yep. then kind of we then built layer on layer. We got some good successes. Uh, I think, you know, Lady Luck also shined a bit, got a few good exits. And so now um, we're on to our third fund, and that's $315 million. So that's a story. I never wanted to be a VC, but just fell into this uh uh, the stock side. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have a couple things on that. First of all, I mean, do you find, cause you have the, like your origin story is like you, you kind of, you had a challenging way of raising money. Do the entrepreneurs, like, can you really relate to the entrepreneurs at a, like a deep level? Like if I were you, I'd be telling that story every time I met with entrepreneurs. So they like, cause sometimes they think like VCs just like you get, you just go to the bank and pick up $50 million <laughs> and you invest it. Like raising it is, is equally hard for venture capitalists as it is for entrepreneurs. Sometimes hotter. Right, because there's a lot more yeah. there's a lot more money chasing entrepreneurs. Uh, whereas in the case of the uh, on the venture capital side, trying to go to institutional LPs, well, you've got you know another forty funds that are waiting in line ahead of you, trying to show their performance before you get in. So so yeah, yep. it's, it's sometimes difficult. But I think I I do as a person who's worked in product management and business development as an operator, as well as having seen those three years of extreme tough fundraising cycle, I, I do have a lot more empathy for yeah. the entrepreneurs i can relate and when i do say no i try to not just say oh no because your market is not big enough or your tam was not big enough i think that's injustice um so i try to give you know if the entrepreneur has spent 55 minutes of their time pitching something to you you ought to at least take that last five minutes and give them the reasons why you're going to say no as opposed to oh yeah. send me an email two weeks later and, and then never respond and ghost them that a little bit more empathy for that side. Yeah. I really, I respect that too. Cause it's, and actually I, I had done in between like in my, before I joined Vanessa at cruise, I had like a little FinTech thing I built and the single, like most impressive person I met, I actually kind of realized towards the end that the, of the prototype, it wasn't going to work. And the only, only venture capitalist that kind of identified the problem that I kind of knew was Josh Koppelman a first round. And he wrote me this, like we went to dinner, gave him the pitch and he wrote me this super extensive email that like I couldn't, like I couldn't believe he actually pinpointed it. And from that day on, this is before like Uber became huge and everyone thought he was br brilliant. Like I saw it, right? And I think those kind of things, like the fact you're doing that and providing that feedback really bolsters your reputation and makes those entrepreneurs, even if they say, you say no, wants them to refer their friends to you as well. Right. And, and I'm not as smart as Josh. Uh, so I don't know if my nose have that same, uh, same weight, but I, I think entrepreneurs really appreciate that. And I think you ought to yeah. say your nose with humility. Like, Hey, I, look, I'm just yeah. a sample point of one. I may be totally wrong. Go seek out the Joshes of the world who might give you better feedback. Yeah. Well, also you mentioned earlier that you had had a couple companies that didn't quite work out after Qualcomm, but that was such a learning experience for you. I mean, how do you convey some of those lessons? Because again, empathy is so important. Like, do you put your arm around their shoulder and say like, oh man, I, I made a similar mistake at my previous company or like, how do you, how do you convey that experience? I, I don't think you do in, in, not at least in your first meetings. I think it's when they yeah, become yeah, yeah. a portfolio company. And, and even there, I think the hard lessons I've had to learn is as an operator, you you want to go jump on the problem and fix it. Whereas what you've got to realize when it's your portfolio company, it's 
the entrepreneur or the CEO that's running it. Uh, I've had, you know, some really good CEOs uh, much younger than me take me aside and say, Q, you know, you have good intentions, but, you know, I'm the one that's running this company. (laughs) So what I learned very early on in the career that my job is then to really learn how to influence them in in Mm. a very soft way, but not like a banging kind of way. And you have to learn how this entrepreneur is influenced the best. Sometimes it might be a hike. Sometimes it might be figuring out who's the father figure for this entrepreneur. Maybe he listens to this particular person. It might be another board member. You've got to really figure out you know, how you're going to influence because in the end, the boards have to just manage CEO performance quarter after quarter after quarter. And you know, if it's not going right, the only thing you can do is have an honest conversation. Hey, you know, we should bring someone else uh, to execute this. But going and saying, oh, I've solved this problem. This is how I fix it at my startup or this is how I fix it at Qualcomm. That's a really horrible way of, of doing it. You've yeah. got to hold on to until yeah. you ask. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I also like the father figure approach, whether you're the father figure or someone else is the father or mother figure too. Like finding that point of influence is really smart. Do you want to spend just a few minutes talking about like the categories that DNX invests in and what your, what your favorite uh, industries are? Right. Well, you know, I think we went on the deep end talking about myself and, and a lot of this stuff, and I didn't say anything about DNX. I like that. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Yeah. So uh, DNX is an early stage B2B firm. We are headquartered both in Tokyo as well as San Mateo, Silicon Valley. In terms of sectors, we do a lot of focus on enterprise and cloud, cybersecurity, deep tech. And we've also you know, been doing practices in things like retail tech and fintech. But, you know, those are the big categories for us. Yep. And we were talking before we turned on the on the mics. And do you want to tell people kind of what your goal is for the next year or the categories you're really focused on? Right. I think what we're doing is um, we are doubling down in the U.S. on the enterprise and cloud practice, I think. And, and the reason for that is with the whole pandemic situation, with remote work, what it has shown is everybody is working. No, nobody's coming into the office, which means that what firewall that used to protect you at the office. Well, you know, now that's got to also be at Starbucks and also be at your home. Uh, The user experience that you're going to have at the edge has to equal that of when you were at the office or when you were closer to your cloud node. And so, you know, edge and both in terms of storage as well as with compute is, is going to have to deal with that. The rise of DevOps because of that, I think we're going to have to address that. And then the whole movement towards trying to build apps without writing code, the no code, or, or basically having serverless or remote compute, you know, all distributed compute, all of this stuff is coming together. So we, we felt like, you know, for this particular fund, we want to definitely double down on this category. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Like serverless is actually one of our clients and I've seen them grow over time. And like that whole trend is amazing. And so is the, I mean, I love the no code stuff because a guy like, like you're an engineer, you know what you're doing. I'm not, I'm a business person. And so having the ability to actually bring applications to life in a no code environment is like incredibly freeing. Like I just love it. Right. But I mean, if you look underlying, it's, you might think it's a widget that you're just pulling here and there and then it's all coming together. But the underlying stuff is, I mean, you know, all the API calls that have to match and then how it's going to spawn the compute and where it's all happening. And by the way, I I have lost all my coding skills long back. So I'm actually worse than you. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm very excited Uh, about that. that, That's incredible. And there's also, I think DNX has, 
Well, first of all, before we get into like kind of the your geographical relationships, the thing I loved on your website was that it was something like DNX. We want to fund your crazy idea, and which which I love. I feel that's kind of freeing. Like, do you find that entrepreneurs like that or like that approach that you're willing to like that deep tech? Like, you want to do deep tech. You're not just focused on like the next SaaS thing. Yes, it, it definitely resonates. I think the in any industry, you don't have to be in deep tech. I think each of those ideas are crazy. Any, any, being an entrepreneur is crazy, right? You know that your success rate is like less than 20%, maybe even less, right? Yep. But here you are yep. jumping off the cliff and giving up your next possibly eight to 10 years of your life to do that. So that, that is already great. So I, I find that using that word crazy immediately connects with them because they are crazy. <laughs> or their or their wife or husband is telling them they're crazy <laughs> while they're doing it. That's serious. Hey, it's Scott Orna, Cruise Consulting. And before we get back to the podcast, quick shout out to ChartHop. ChartHop is one of my favorite new SaaS tools on the market. And basically what ChartHop does is it puts your org chart in the cloud. And I always like to say, like, it brings transparency to your organization. And so you know, everyone in your organization can see who they report to. They can see the full org chart of the company and how their group relates to other groups. It also has a lot of information on the individuals of the company. And so you can click on the chart out profile and just get like where people live, their experience, you know, Slack handles, all this kind of stuff. And it's just a really great tool. The other thing is ChartOp has started doing some cool stuff around compensation and budgeting planning. And so you can actually start seeing like what the cost structure of the company look like during certain kind of scenarios. So I'm loving ChartOp. Check it out, chartop.com. We use it at Cruise, really like it, and I can't recommend it enough. All right, back to the podcast. There's also, I think we should also talk about DNX's stage. Like, where do you play in the life cycle of a startup? Where do you want to invest? Right. You know, uh, for this new fund, what we found is the, the sweet spot for us is the seed plus and series A categories. And so you'd say, well, seed plus, what is this new definition that you're coming up with? I think it's basically companies did raise a small seed, but require that little bit more capital to get to between one to 3 million ARR. And that's the point at which you can raise a good series A. You know, you could go raise you know, 50, 10, 10 to $20 million series A sometimes with that, those kind of traction. Yep. So that's been a very good, Seed plus and then CVZ. Those are the two categories you're focused on. I totally agree with that seed plus category. It's like a it's a new category or people didn't it used to be either raise your seed fund and you're successful and you raise an A or you're out of business, right? Especially with like software-based businesses, the incremental progress is easy to track and you can see what's happening. And so it makes sense for the seed plus. And I, I think that's super smart. And and I feel like that's also like a slightly less competitive market right now where like maybe not everyone's, not all venture capitalists have caught on to that trend. I mean, do you see that? Well, now by the time you publish your podcast, it'll be all out. So yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely feel that that's, uh, that's a very sweet spot for the size of our fund that, you know, we have. 315, we're going to invest 50% of the US, 50% in Japan. And so for that, if you look at the US size yeah. investment, well, C plus is perfect. We, we can take a risk that's a little bit earlier because the, the moment you get into A to B side, you have tremendous competition in the Valley, right? Yeah. In Japan, I think it's still fine with the, with 
having across the gamut seed a b i think we are the the top dog in japan so that's that's okay but we have a lot of competition here in the valley well, let's talk about japan i mean i thought that was really interesting that you have this dual you know us slash silicon valley and then you also have this really big presence in in japan how did that come about right from the start of the fund that was always a, a very clear kind of value proposition that we want to connect these two, you know, US and Japan. And what that means is essentially for the Japanese entrepreneurs, bringing in a lot of the good practices of, let's say, US venture style investing. I'm not saying a total Western style investing, but essentially the good things, leave the bad things, you know, back in the US, rolling up the sleeves and helping. Uh, the Japanese startups in terms of recruiting, in terms of their strategy, in, in terms of, say, if you're focused on SaaS, then understanding like, hey, you know, this is what your LTV CAC ought to be. This is what things ought to be. Um, you know, in the U.S., some of the trends that are happening on things like cloud and enterprise, Japan's basically, it might be, you know, just two or three years away, you'll see exactly the same trend. So I think, you know, you're bringing mm -hmm. all of those good things onto the Japan side. From Japan, what we're bringing to the U.S. is like our U.S. companies want to go expand into Japan. They want from Japan to expand into Asia. Japan has a very high IT spending. Japan has, uh, uh, again, a very good way of making sure your IP is protected, your contracts, and then you get paid on time. So there are very good business factors. Now, it might take a little bit more time to get your deal done in Japan, but once it's done and once it's signed, nobody's negotiating with you. And... People are investing in you for a long, longer time. So, you know, startups really like entering into Asia through Japan. Yeah, that, that was the question I was going to ask. Are you seeing a lot of companies going through Japan? Are you seeing them go through China first? Or what's how what's that mix like? Yeah, it's we are, really, we are living in a very interesting time with respect to uh, China, right? I think the, the whole US-China yeah. situation, but it's not just US-China, it's Japan-China, it's India-China. It's it, I think it's like China versus the rest of the world. Yeah, that dynamic plays in the favor, I would say, of of where we stand. I think same thing with respect to the whole Hong Kong China thing, where where essentially that entire flow of capital that used to be in Hong Kong has got to move somewhere because people are not comfortable that that's going to move to China. A couple of choices you've got is Singapore, Tokyo. I think Singapore is not big enough to maybe absorb all that capital flow. So I think Tokyo is the mm -hmm. right place. Mm -hmm. So I think a couple of uh, a couple of those trends are working in Japan's favor. That's super smart. And do you have? And you don't. Sometimes venture capital funds don't want to disclose their LPs, but do you have a mix of LPs like Japanese, you know, companies or pension funds and U.S.-based pension funds, or how DNX funded? Like, I, basically, the question I'm asking is like. Do some of the LPs in Japan also open up doors even beyond, you know, what the partners of the NX open up? Right. I think that is one of our fundamental, um, you know, value propositions. Yeah. I mean, we have for at least for our U.S. companies. So, for example, um, you know, our mix of investors is the institutional investors. But in addition to that, we have 30 large corporations from the all global corporations, but they're based in Japan. And... What these 30 companies then do is appoint one person liaison that would work in as the business development window or customer development window for our portfolio companies. And so wow, we, cool. we basically have a track record of having 120 partnerships so far in, in the last decade, which have gone on, you know, some of them have gone on to become big revenue generators for the startup companies. Yeah. 
I mean, that's an incredible pitch to a startup in that, you know, especially like at series a, you're trying to get to like one to $3 million in revenue to get your series a. And if you can, DNX can bring, you know, a customer that signs a million dollar check, you know, that all of a sudden the company's like there, you know, that's, that's a really nice value added in addition to all the strategic advice you're giving them. That, does that resonate with the startup founders? Absolutely. It does. And sometimes they might already have pilot customers and they'll say, well, what if I could get a channel partnership with someone like a Hitachi they are, they're an investor in our fund. And that might be very big for, let's say a jump up in valuation at series B or maybe from series yeah. B to series C. So it's not just the initial customers, but is the channel is really important. Yep. That makes so much sense. And we were talking about some of like that you're pretty focused on the cloud over the next year. Are there any kind of, you know, you talked about some security stuff. Are there any other segments that you're super focused? Like if someone might be some a startup founder might at, you know, the seed stage founder listening to this that knows you're doing seed plus or series A. Are there other verticals or other industries that you're super excited about that they should be contacting you? Pitch? I mean, look, I think uh, when I say when I say enterprise and cloud, I don't want it to be too restrictive because you're going to be building a lot of new services on top of this cloud and enterprise, and so I think you can be building things like new ways of uh, mortgage lending, or it might be more document processing. So. I don't think anything is precluded, but we just want you to be cloud first. And we want you to be uh, not just cloud first, but also pick up a lot of the trends that are happening in that cloud domain. Because, you know, like you, we discussed a little bit of serverless, we discussed about no code, APIs, all of that stuff. If, if you could use that and actually build a service, I think that's fine. In fact, yeah, uh, a lot of our that's... deals in Japan are exactly that. Underlying thing is cloud, but actually it's a service. It might be a digitization of let's say construction workers. And so, I mean, that's one of the companies yeah. that has taken off really well in Japan is people used to use WhatsApp and Line and you know other communication tools to say, this is the schedule, this is the shift of the workers who yeah. are at the remodel of this home. And this is the blueprint changes that are happening. And now it's all using, you know, AntPad to essentially do the digitization. So yes, I mean, I would say the larger yeah. theme of, digitization with underlying cloud native, that's a really good sector. Yeah. And tech enabled services sounds like you really like, that's really cool. Have you guys allocated, you know, a certain amount of the, the $300 million fund to seed and then a certain amount to series A, or is it pretty loose? And it's just, you, you know, when you find a good deal that you really want to invest in, you're just going to have at it. Well, I mean, in a, in a modeling we have, something like hey you know 40% of the deals are going to be C plus and 40% of the deals are going to be series A and the other 20% yeah. keep your mind open so we have that but i think what we are finding is as we do more C plus more C pluses are coming in it's a good i'm telling you it's a good space that that's a really nice sweet spot and again i feel like the industries you're investing in those businesses can show very like a nice progression and it makes it a little easier for you to, to identify the future winners. It's not still very difficult, but it's like, it's doable. Or were you going to say something? No, I, I think uh, the, the category of that particular category is also very interesting uh, from another reason, which is entrepreneurs haven't still made that cut to the A, right? There's a whole bunch of things that are in motion. They haven't figured out maybe enterprise selling, or if they figured out enterprise selling, they haven't figured out director developer, or they haven't figured out channel. So there's all of that stuff going on. They haven't 
put the players in place because they haven't raised that much money, right? So you don't have a VP of sales as yet. You may not even have your controller in place. I mean, so there is a whole bunch of spots that are empty. So then what they're looking for is to partner with a with a VC or VC firm that has a much higher level of empathy with what they're going through. And I mean, I, for example, in during this uh, whole pandemic time, uh, it has actually worked out quite positive uh, because there is a lot of unstructured time now on the calendar where when you were in the office, it was back-to-back meetings. So when an entrepreneur came in at 50 minutes, your your basically EA would bang on your door and say, hey, the next meeting is ready, right? Well, now what yep. you're able to do is carve out two, two and a half hours when an entrepreneur that has passed at least the smell test, they'll come in, yeah. we will start off with a little discussion in my backyard on the patio. We'll be sitting you know, distance apart, but we'll be talking and then kind of it starts to make sense and we'll go for a hike around, you know, either the Foster City Levee or around one of the uh, one of the parks in Belmont or San Mateo. That might be another one hour walk. We grab, you know, half an hour lunch. So now that unstructured time for that C plus entrepreneur has turned out to be actually a, a competitive advantage for, for us and for them. I love it. You're totally right. Like normally VCs are so scheduled and it's probably hard for you to like even clear your mind and think about the next meeting or think about the advice you're giving in that moment. So I, re- I really respect that. Good for you. Well, I'm so glad we talked and I really like where you're going. And I think the Japan US connection is also really strong. Do you want, maybe you can just tell everyone how they can find you, how to reach out through the website or through LinkedIn or how you prefer to be contacted? Well, you can always go to dnx.vc. And then all of us have our emails and you know, info listed. We, we even have a tab for you to submit your business plan and it'll come to us. If you want to get even a, a shorter way, my name is Q and my email is Q at dnx.vc. All right. So it cannot get any simpler than that. All you got to remember is DNX because Q and VC are the, the, the prefix and the suffix. So I think the main takeaways out here are if you are an entrepreneur that's doing B2B, early stage, C plus, Series A, and you want a VC that's customer dev focus or channel development focus, send us an email. Yeah, I love it. Well, hopefully we can send some of the cruise clients over to you too and, and make it a little easier for you. Q, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure. And now you're free, hopefully, maybe maybe not quite free, but to go do something on a, a Friday beer. afternoon, Friday evening. That's more. Yes. Virtual <laughs> cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Right, man. Thank, Thank you so you. much. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Oh.